Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door and let's chat about art, architecture, history, real estate, and of course food. Let's jump in. A fresh start, a new leaf, turning the page, taking the first step, beginning again, hitting the reset button, and starting over. Another year has dawned and many of us are busily setting new goals or attempting to build new habits. Those fresh blank calendars are beckoning to us to write our new, next, and best chapter. What motivates us to crave that fresh start feeling? Sometimes it can be a real and urgent need to make a change for the good of our own selves or the ones we love, or sometimes we just want to feel better, healthier, happier, and more secure. Very often, too, our new beginnings are forced upon us as we cope with trauma, loss, and even a brush with death. Today, we have the unbelievable privilege of speaking with someone who is very familiar with the concept of starting fresh. Rhonda Britton, author of the book Fearless Living, Live Without Excuses, and Love Without Regret, and the founder of the Fearless Living Institute. So clear your schedule and let's start at square one on the subject of starting again. We are both honored and excited to introduce our guest today, the fearless and inspirational Rhonda Britton. Not only is Rhonda an Emmy Award winner and a repeat Oprah guest, she is also a four-time best-selling author and founder and CEO of the Fearless Living Institute. Rhonda has impacted thousands of lives, including our own, teaching people of all walks of life how to overcome their own personal self-limiting fear and fulfill their own potential. Welcome, Rhonda. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. I can't Thank even you. tell you how excited we are <laughs> that you're here with us. I just can't wait to get into this interview with you. Let's um, do it. So I've read your books. Which I, I am so honored by. Do you know how few interviewers actually read the person's books? So thank you so much, first of all. Well, they will get into it, but they have provided a lot of structure for my own personal work and Lauren's mm -hmm. too. And I've introduced it to my family as well. I just recently watched your appearance on a documentary called Unsinkable, mm -hmm. which I found really inspiring. And I listened to so many of the interviews you have done in podcast format as well. So I know and love you from afar. <laughs> uh, and I've said that you've brought a light into my own life and some clarity that I hadn't had before. And I know you've had this impact on so, so many people. One of the things that you have said is that you encourage us all to live our lives as our souls intend. Yes, yes. So what do you mean by that, Rhonda? You know, one of the things that when I first started my business, I'm a God girl, you know, and for 20 years after my parents died, which I know we'll talk about in a minute, 
um, I put God on the other side of the fence, right? Like it was like, okay, God, I love you, but can't trust you, right? So I think we've all, many of us have gone through that same, like having that ad adversarial relationship with God or that, like, I don't know what to do with him, her, it, whatever you, again, perceive God to be. And um, when I came back to the fold, which is a whole journey in itself, um, you know, I really am only doing this because God told me to. Right. And when I talk about live the life your soul intended, I'm talking about that God connection, right? Your right. soul is a vehicle for the spirit, for source, for the divine, for the great beyond, what again, whatever you deem that thing to be. And when you live the life your soul intended, you are living from a place of alignment, your body, your heart, your mind, your soul, if you're willing, if you're willing, I should say, you can live a life of alignment. And when you have a life of alignment, when you are living the life your soul intended, your mind gets quiet and you have actual peace of mind, which really at the end of the day, when we talk about, I want freedom, you know, I want to make a lot of money. What we're really saying underneath all that is I want peace of mind. I want to trust my decisions. I want to know that I am enough. I want to walk in this earth and be good as myself and be well taken care of and be provided for and be secure and safe and excited, right? We want all those things. We want purpose and passion. Well, we can get them through our fear, right? Because our fear will help us get them. And many people call, you know, we can call it ego. We can call it fear. We can call it monkey mind, whatever you want to call it. I call it fear because I believe that is really what we're talking about. Or we can follow the soul's guidance and fear, of course, will stop you from doing that. Yes. So live the life your soul intended to me is a high calling. It is not something to throw out like, oh, live the life your soul intended. You know, it's actually like, oh my God, am I really willing to live the life that I was meant to live, that I'm here, I'm born to live my destiny? Or am I just going to flounder on this earth, keep, you know, hitting walls and windows and floors and keep trying to make it up myself? Because uh, trust me, I would never be doing what I'm doing today if I listened to myself, never in a million years. I mean, that really resonates with me because I feel like I've been controlled by my fear for so long and doing yes. exactly that, throwing myself up against walls and nothing ever really was aligning with me in doing some of the work that you've introduced. I feel like I'm, it's a journey. Yes, to, to figure <laughs> yes. out what that life is that your soul mm -hmm. attends and to be more open to that. But I feel like I'm on the path. Ah, excellent. Well, yeah. you know, it, it it is a path in and of itself, but you're on a path anyway, right? Like, so you can either choose the path of fear, or you can choose the path of living life, your soul intended. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. And true. so even though you may not click into your purpose right away, right? Like click in automatically and immediately and know everything immediately. The point is, is that, you know, just like we hear about intuition, the more you court intuition, the more you'll hear it. The more you court, court, court your soul, the more you'll be in alignment with it. And most of us are waiting for a miracle to happen in order for us to trust the thing that's bigger than us, or we're waiting for something to happen in some way, again, a miracle, magic, something for us to believe that thing finally is loving us, is caring for us, is want, you know, wanting to be with us, wanting to help us. So we're constantly going in and out, right? We're going like, oh, I'm going to do it today. And then something happens. It's like, I can't trust the guy, you know, and then we go back. So we're constantly going back and forth. And one of the things that I do inside Fearless Living 
is I help you maintain your climb, right? Maintain your willingness to keep staying open regardless of what life throws at you. You know, how can you stay loving when the world is not? You know, how can you stay, you know, joyous when the world is not? How can you stay connected and happy and 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 just, I'll just want to say connected to the world when the world feels like a very scary place? Yeah. So all of this is our choice, but it doesn't feel like our choice because so few of us have been trained, have been given skills, have been given the tools to actually do it. I mean, that's why I created what I created one, cause God told me to, but two is that, you know, I lived when I was younger, I want to be a minister. And then I lived the 20 years in the desert and in the 20, 20 years of the desert, I did everything, you name it. I did it. You know, I did shaman work. I did energy healing. I did inner child work. I did rebirthing. You know, I did psychotherapy. I did trauma. You know, I, I trust me, I have done like everything under the sun and all those things helped me in certain ways, right? They like, like that they filled some gaps, some holes in me. If we want to think of me, like I always felt like I had 20 or 30 holes like running through my body, right? And right. some of the, they definitely filled some holes, but you know what it didn't do for me? It didn't create a holistic view of life. It didn't create a holistic picture that I could hang on to and that I could live outside of. They were just, and they ended up just being tools because yeah. the philosophies interfered with each other right one person told me this and one person told me that and one philosophy told me this and it I just I remember sitting there so confounded because it's like well wait a minute this does not seem comprehensive it just seems like piecemeal and yeah, when like you know of yeah cobbling together yeah yeah and then who do we blame when it's patchwork who do we blame we blame ourselves Right. Mm. Because the people that are teaching us that patchwork say, oh, this is all you need. You know, oh, this is like, well, it's kind of what I say. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, you know, this is what you need. This is this is what you need, because maybe for them, that was what they needed. But for me, they were just tools. They didn't end up being the holistic system that I needed in order to live my life. So I always say when you do fearless living, everything you've ever done in the past, whether it's energy work or therapy or, you know, uh, manifesting, manifesting law of attraction, whatever it is. Once you understand the difference between fear and freedom, then it gets really easy to utilize those tools because Absolutely. now your self-doubt, your self-doubt goes away, right? Your self-doubt, you don't sit there and go, should I, should I not? You, like, you know, you like actually have some clarity because again, if we don't have clarity, we don't have trust. If we don't have clarity, we don't make, take action. If we don't have clarity, we mm -hmm. don't have peace, right? So our clarity is a gift. So with this whole, with what I believe is when you understand how fear and freedom work, it gives you access to every single thing you've ever learned, every single book you've ever read, every single workshop you've ever attended, and you'll actually be able to utilize those skills and tools. And I, and that's exactly what I have felt. And I think Lauren would agree that it is the clarity. It is like, and I think I even said this before, it is like a light has been shone onto my journey to date and perhaps where I am going. I'm so happy. And I'm so happy that you're, touching the hem of the garment, like, you know, falling into fearless living and really starting to see and being able to utilize it quickly. So I'm so thrilled for you. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it does take work though, right? Yes, it's it does. Like you can just well, read one of your books and, and it's just going to magically transform your life. You actually have to do that. Do the exercises in the book. I actually listened to you by audiobook first. Ooh. So I need to go back. And it was wonderful hearing your voice and hearing your stories. But now I want to go back and have the book in front of me mm -hmm. so that I can mm -hmm. write everything out and go through the exercises again. Yes. Well, that's the thing. I, I, I've i really 
really just know that my work is a little, I don't want to say deeper, but deeper or more comprehensive than most people. So it does take a willingness, you know, it takes a willingness to go, you know what, I'm done piecemealing, you know, I'm done, you know, trying to find the quick cure. I'm done trying to deal in magic. You know, again, I love miracles, right? But I'm done pretending that if I say the magic word, then the magic's going to happen, right? Again, not that miracles don't happen, but, you know, that I'm really ready to find the thing that will sustain me for the next 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years of your life. Mm-hmm. So it does take somebody who is willing to go, you know what? I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to live the life my soul intended. And I'm willing to do the work. Yeah. And, you know, I'm there to hold you. You know, our, we have faculty, we have, you know, coaches, we have support, we have community. So we're there to hold you. Uh, you just have to walk in the door. Exactly. And be ready to do, to, to, to not necessarily look for the answers out there, yes. but to, to use your program as a support to look for the answers within. Yes. Yes. And it so, will also help you filter the world as well. Cause you'll be able to see people's fear, which is really lovely. You know, yeah. you'll be like, Oh, that person's afraid. And it changes then your communication with people the way you see people, the connection with them, because when you understand they're afraid rather than being a jerk, right? When they're afraid rather than being a, you know what, all of a sudden there's a level of compassion and innocence that you have for others, as well as yourself. As well as yourself. So you have lived this journey from fear to fearless. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your own experience, your origin story and how it's led you to this, this point? Of course, I'd be happy to. So I think what you're referring to is my worst day of my life, right? Um, so when I was 14 years old, I grew up in a little tiny town in upper Michigan and uh, we had 365 inches of snow a year mm-hmm. and not very <laughs> many, re- we had no you know fast food restaurants. There was nothing, there was like two restaurants in town and it was Father's Day and my parents had recently separated and my father was coming to take us out to Sunday brunch. And, um, you know, so he comes in, come on, come on, come on. My sister's in the bathroom fighting it out. Me and my mom, she's bluffing up her beehive hairdo and putting on her pink, eye, you know, blue eyeshadow and her rose color lipstick. And, you know, my dad's like, come on. So me, my dad and my mother start walking out. My sisters are still fighting in the bathroom. And because we only have one bathroom, 850 square foot house. And we're walking out. And my father says he has to get a co- his coat from the car. It starts, had started sprinkling. And my mother had put on her raincoat. I had mine on. And so as me and my mother walk out, my father opens his trunk and I notice that he hasn't grabbed a coat, but he has grabbed a gun and he starts shouting at my mother, you made me do this. You made me do this. And he cocks the gun and fires. And I start screaming, dad, what are you doing? Dad, what are you doing? Stop. And he cocks the gun again and points it at me. And for the next, you know, it seemed like forever, probably was 10, 20, 30 seconds, whatever, but it felt like forever. He and I just locked eyes and he blinked, I blinked, he blinked, I blinked. And I absolutely believed in that moment he was going to kill me. He had uh, attempted to kill me earlier by strangling me a few years before. So with a gun in my face and he just shot my mother, I was convinced that I was going to be next. And my mother with her last breath, literally sees that my father has a gun in my face and screams out, no, don't. My father, realizing my mother is still alive, turns the gun that's cocked with a bullet for me and shoots her a second time. And with that second bullet, 
her, she fell into the car and her elbow hit the horn. So for the next 20 minutes, all I heard was, eh. and then my father cracks the gun again, falls to his knees, puts the gun to his head and fires. So within a matter of minutes, I was the sole witness to my father murdering my mother and committing suicide in front of me. Now, before this, you know, I had just told my parents I wanted to be a minister. I loved God. I was like all in. And when this happened, I, I, I blame myself. It must be my fault. I had just given my life to God. And now this is a test. And I ran into my mother's room, got down on my hands and knees and basically said, God, please save my mother. If you save my mother, I will be a minister. But if you do not save my mother, I all bets are off. And so my mother did die and my father did die. And I put a line in between me and God. I didn't hate him. I never got angry at him. I never was like, screw you. I, I just was like, your tests are too big. Yeah. You know, that phrase that says, oh, I will never give you a test that you can't, you know, I can't remember the exact phrase, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I will never give you a test that you cannot do. And it's like, yeah, yeah. You gave me a test that I cannot do yeah. because in the next 20 years, I basically started drinking. I became an alcoholic. I tried to kill myself three times, got three DUIs. And um, it was that third suicide attempt when I really realized and again, all this time I was doing the therapy and then everything I was doing. So I was on one hand, you know, trying to save my life. And on the other hand, trying to numb the feelings of the overwhelm of rejection and abandonment and hurt and blame. And, you know, you know, it's my fault. I'm the one that was the only one there. I didn't kick him. I didn't grab the gun. I did nothing to stop him. Right. I'm the, I was the only one there that could have stopped it. And I didn't do anything heroic. So, you know, I was living those two worlds like so many of us do. And it was on the 20th anniversary of my parents' death, you know, after my third suicide attempt, when I realized <sighs> nobody's coming to save me. Yeah. And if I want to save myself, I got to start at the beginning. So I actually went out. I get home from the hospital for my third suicide attempt. And I live by myself in a little apartment, which of course is not a good idea. You live by yourself when you're suicidal. And I went to the store and got a calendar with gold stars. And I know this seems so simplistic, but it it realigned me, right? I I had to find a reason to stay alive. Yeah. Because I realized, you know, I wasn't dying. I tried three times. I wasn't dying. So if I wasn't dying, um, there had to be a purpose for me to live. But I didn't think I was worthy of that. So I got the gold stars and I got the calendar. And every day I put a gold star on the calendar. Anytime I did anything good, anything remotely nice, anything remotely positive. Um, I have that calendar still. Yeah. And my niece is uh, just visited me recently and it's in my office and she's like, what's this? And I said, well, this is my 30 day calendar when I decided, was trying to decide to save myself or not, whether I was worth living. Right. And they're, I mean, the things are like, got mad, didn't break anything. Like that's like, that's the level we're talking about, right? It, it, what, you know, we're not talking anything, but like, um, her, got hurt, felt rejected, but didn't you know, attack anyone, right? Like this is the level we're at. And, and those 30 days, I just kept focused on anything worth saving. 
And at the end of 30 days, I went, okay, I have something in me. Like there's something good in here somewhere and I'm worth saving. Yeah. And, um, and then my journey to fearless living began. Thank you so much for sharing that story. It oh, is you're welcome. A, it's a difficult story to hear. And I can imagine it was even more difficult to experience what has come out of it after that 30 days of finding your worthiness has, has blossomed into a gift that's reached so many. So I'm grateful. Oh, I, yeah. I, I know that my mother and father and I had a soul contract. I am highly aware now, of course, those 20 years, it was like, screw you. Right. But you know, once I got to the other side and started to do the work that ultimately became fearless living, I'm very aware that me, my mom and dad, like we're in heaven going, what do we want to do in this life? Right. And yeah. like, I always say my dad came up with the idea. My dad's like, oh, I got it. Why don't you Rhonda, you know, get, I didn't have a name. Right. But you, you angel, why don't you help people master fear? And I'm like, well, why that, why that sounds amazing. And then he goes, yeah, but something really bad's going to happen to happen to you. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Something bad's going to happen to me. And he looks at my mom and goes, why don't you be the mom? I'll be the dad. You be the daughter and I'll be the bad guy this lifetime. And I will kill everybody. And I'm, and I'm, we're like, a, yeah, perfect. <laughs> but again, when we come down to earth, we don't remember any of that. Right. And we're just in the pain of being human. But I do, I do believe that wholeheartedly that my father, my mother, and I had a soul contract and that I am here to, that I'm not here just for myself, right? That didn't just happen for me. You know, my mother, my mother and my father, their life, you know, fearless living is a testament to that moment, to their, to them, to their courage to do what, you know, especially my mother, you know, to live the life that she wanted to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was divorcing my dad and saying like, wait, I, I want to live a different life. Fearless living really just saved my life and, and God too. But, but it took me a while to bring God back in. Were you angry at God at any point? I know you said you weren't really, really oppositional to him, but was there an element of acceptance or I didn't trust, I didn't trust God. Yeah. Right. Because I was convinced for 20 years until me and God wrestled. Um, I was convinced that if I believed in God again, he would take somebody else in my family because clearly I hadn't passed the test. Right. Like I wasn't right. Living a God life. I wasn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. So somebody else is going to die. Yeah. And I, and again, you can logically, we can logically say, well, of course, that's not necessarily true. Of course, logically, of course, I even knew that wasn't necessarily true, but it doesn't matter what your logic says. Every cell in your being is going, something's going to die, right? Mm -hmm. Like every cell in my being was like, if you do this, because I loved God. Yeah, you, know? you were a I, God I, girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, missed, I missed God, right? But it's like, it was too dangerous. Yeah. And so I couldn't save my mother. So I had to sacrifice myself and my relationship with God to save my family. Yeah. And I remember when God and I did end up, you know, we end up got to a point where we wrestled in the car, no kidding for like 45 minutes, over an hour, like me and God just had it out. And at the end of it, I remember surrendering and going, if everyone has to die, everyone has to die. Now, again, logically, I know, 
you know, logically we go, oh, well, no, that doesn't have to happen. Mm -hmm. It is not about logic. It is about every cell in your being and is like, okay, Rhonda, if everybody died tomorrow, are you choosing God over keeping every single person? Like, because this is a choice. This is what you're yeah. deciding. Again, and again, logic, right? And logically, you know, you know, but viscerally, you don't, right? It's just too. It's so. So I got to the point of going, I can't. I can no longer deny you. I can't deny yeah. you anymore. And then I fell in his arms and started crying and weeping and was scared to de death to go to bed that night and scared to wake up the next morning to see what would happen. Yeah, <laughs> that whole process of, you know, just having out with God. And again, I'm, I'm so serious that it was like wrestling with God, right. That I finally basically forgave him and forgave myself to a certain extent. Cause I did a lot of forgiveness work before and after that and forgave and decided that, you know, I could no longer deny his existence in my life. Right. So that, so that was what it was for me. It was like, because before, if somebody said the word God, I'd be like universe, light, you know, field, you know, I, I, I divine, right. I, I just didn't want to hear the word God, the hearing the yeah. word God, just, I was like, Oh, that God, you know? Um, so I, I had to change the word. And afterwards I started to say the word God again. That was, that was the proof that the change had happened. Right. Because we, if we pay attention to our language and our behaviors, we will know it's working because we will unconsciously and automatically start shifting our language and shifting our behavior without almost any effort, right? Mm -hmm. So I just started using God and, you know, courted God and God courted me and, uh, and knock on wood, everyone's safe so far, right? Yeah. Um, Seems to be working again, out. <laughs> for now, right? <laughs> Somebody's going to die sometime, right? Yeah, let's go, right? But yeah, so that was, you know, it was uh, those 20 years were, um, I don't wish those on anybody. Um, I don't wish those on anybody. And I always say, you know, you don't have to go through what I went through. Just do the work of fearless living and you can bypass all of that. You can bypass that, that really you bypass, journey. You can bypass all the self-hatred and blame and shame and confusion and just self-loathing and not feeling good enough and wishing you were dead and thinking the other shoe is going to drop all the time. And you can't be happy because your mother's, you know, mother's dead. Cause I really believed that how can you be happy when your mother's dead and you didn't do anything about it? Like, how can you ever, how can you ever be happy? Like that just goes out the window. Yeah. So, you know, that only came back when, um, when I came back to God and started doing the work of what became fearless living. Ronda, since that major experience of sort of coming back to God, do you ever sort of flounder in your faith? Like, I, yes, you know, yes, other yes. In your life since sure. Then? Or has sure. it always been smooth sailing since then? <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, I've had a, no, I've had a, I had a huge dark night um, uh, about 10, 12 years ago that took me down. And I remember saying to God, are you joking? And it, you know, a dark night for me is, um, is when the rug gets pulled out from under you, right? That's what a dark night is. And you feel like, who are you now? Right? Like, like all your bearings are gone. Your, 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 your bearings are gone. Your, your, 
you're no longer in the boat, right? You're, you're, you're floundering, you're, you know, drowning, you're, you don't know who you are anymore. It goes through this period of time where you are a blank slate almost, which, you know, can be frightening. And of course, then I went through this whole, like, what is God and who is God? Cause when you go through a dark, dark night, part of that, at part of a dark night is questioning God again, is questioning, like, I don't know, come on. Like, isn't just energy and it's not something more than that. And it can't be personal. He can't love me. Doesn't it just like energetically, just as in this physics, you know? So I definitely went through that for a good, I would say really, um, cause I surrendered to the dark night. Cause I knew if I surrendered, it would be less painful and, uh, I could move through it quicker. And I'm writing a book about that right now, actually about my dark night. And so, yeah, so I went through another level, but that's going to continuously happen, right? Because as you deepen your relationship with spirit, God, divine, whatever you, however you want to name it, whatever you want to name it, you are, as you grow and claim more parts of yourself and forgive, you have a level of knowingness connection that it does have to go through, uh, I'll just say like a cleansing, like a palate cleanser, right? Like it's, it's like, you have to go through the cycle again and go, okay, well, wait a minute. And if you don't kind of court that always, you know, um, cause the dark night can come and, you know, it's gonna, you know, I had no idea, like it, like I had no idea that it was coming. And then, and it came and slapped me on the face and just, I was like, are you joking? And I remember be, that's when I was super, that's when I was angry at God. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you, you got to be kidding. Um, after all this, um, but, but what it gave me that dark night gave me, and this is the, this is the, you know, so many people are afraid to go through the dark night, right? So many people are afraid to court it and, and be one with it because they're afraid of what's going to happen. Right. Which again, it's, it's be scary. I get it. But you know, the gifts that you get out of the dark night on some level can only be gotten that way. Right. And you know, one of the gifts that I got was I, I say the story of how, you know, what did you get from the dark night Rhonda? Well, I'll tell you, if you came to my house before the dark night and you knocked on my door and we didn't have an appointment, I'd be like, why are you here? I'm busy, you know? And now if you knocked on my door, I'd open the door and say, oh my God, come in. I, I'm so happy to see you. Please, please come in. Right. So um, I've, I've had coaches tell me that I'm so much softer and so much more inviting and so much more compassionate. And I, I believe I, that's how I feel, you know? So, um, that's the gift that the dark night gave me. And that was worth everything. You know, yeah. somebody who's devoted to love, uh, you know, you're going to go, we're all going to go through the dark night in some way, shape or form in order to actually fulfill your wish. Yeah, absolutely. Because they, as you say, they're periods of growth. They're, they're periods rapid of growth. periods of growth. And so if you surrender to it, instead of fighting it, you will greatly benefit from the experience, you know? And yes, you got to get support, right? Like I went to a shaman, I went to a, uh, a therapist, I did some trauma work, um, I did energy work, I did acupuncture, I did functional medicine. Like I totally, for probably a year and a half to two years, I took exquisite care of myself. Mm -hmm. And um, so many of us are unable to do that or unwilling to do that when it's actually the very thing we must do. Yeah. You had mentioned forgiveness and self-forgiveness. And so many of us walk around with, with similar feelings of shame and unworthiness and regret and embarrassment, perhaps of past behaviors. 
is that all part of it? Is that all? That yeah. Well, I th- you know, I, the way that I talk about forgiveness um, is that it is a daily thing. You know, we, we're short with the bank teller. Yeah. If we really understand the wheel of fear and wheel of freedom, if we understand how fear is, we know in that moment that our need wasn't being met and we were, you know, something was happening, like some, whatever that person reminded you of something or tr- you know, triggered you in some way. And you're not a bad person because you, you know, got short with that person. You're not a bad person. Um, you know, you're not evil. You're not worthless, right? You, you literally just were activated by fear. And if you can give yourself the forgiveness and the grace to know that you too need compassion in that moment, because that's, you wouldn't, you wouldn't act out if you didn't need compassion, right? You, you wouldn't act out if you didn't need care. You wouldn't act out because your need isn't being met. So you, you know, to soothe yourself, to care for yourself. So forgiveness is critical. And I, I know that I could not have moved on with my life if I hadn't forgiven my father, which was by the way, the easiest person to forgive then forgive my mother, uh, which, you know, was just baffling to me. Like, why do I have to forgive her? She's the victim here. But it's like, no, you know, she, you know, again, I'm not blaming my mother, obviously, in any sense, in any sense. Um, Yeah, but she stayed with my father. And she, when my father tried to kill me, she did nothing. You know, like she, she Mm -hmm. contributed because again, she was scared, right? Yeah. I always say, you know, my mother died because of fear, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that willingness to then forgive myself for not saving them that day, for not being heroic and not knowing, you know, I'm 14 years old and, you know, I can't stop the bullets and I, I don't jump, you know, I don't, you know, I don't grab the gun, you know, forgiving myself for where I was in that moment and what I could and couldn't do in that moment. So many times um, we focus on not forgiving others so we can stay angry as a protection but that's a false protection and keep, and, and I can't tell you how many people I coach, they are deathly afraid of getting forgiving because God forbid, they're not angry because how are they going to hold boundaries or how are they going to hold, you know, the energy and how are they going to keep that person away? So it's so frightening for so many people to actually forgive because they do not yet know that they have the capacity and don't have the tools to hold a boundary, to say yes, to say no, to know what's actually happening from a philosophical, spiritual perspective, right? Yeah. So forgiveness though, is something that doesn't just happen when a major event like my parents happen. It's literally forgiving yourself, forgiving the bank teller, you know, forgiving that moment mm-hmm. and washing yourself clean every day. Yeah, every day. I that's so interesting. Anger as a protection. We do, we hang on to to anger. And it is, it's a wall that we put that's up around right. us. Yeah, we because we don't have any skills or other skills or tools. Yeah. And we don't have the awareness that there's another way. If that's the only tool in your toolbox, you're gonna use it. And oh, by the way, that's smart, right? You're walking around angry, protecting yourself. If you feel that if you feel that that's your only tool, then that's your only tool. The challenge is, is that in your, you know, bluster of being angry, you're actually very, very, very fragile. And so the more skills and tools you have, the more you'll actually be able to stand on your own two feet and the more you will quit being victimized, you know, quit putting yourself as the victim Mm -hmm. and become sovereign and take yourself back. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, Rhonda, when I was listening to your book, um, 
you know, as, as soon as I was listening to it, I, I was speaking with Heather saying, you know, this really should be mandatory reading for just being, <laughs> for being human. I said, like, oh, it, if only it was, oh, no, if only it was. <laughs> it, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, since, since I was listening to it, I kept thinking to myself, okay, so this decision I'm making, am I making it out of fear? It, and it holds expasp from so much positive change. Absolutely. And, I'm just, and I'm just wondering, you know, how would you recommend that we excavate our fears? And also, and how are you responding to other people? You know, I've heard you say that, you know, when when people are angry, that that there's fear there. Well, it. well, one of the first things to do is to start keeping track of what I call your fear responses. Okay. And, you know, what we normally call those are our faults, right? Well, I procrastinate. I'm a people pleaser. Oh, I just give too much. Oh, I wish I would quit doing that. I wish I would quit saying that to my mother. I wish I could say something different, right? All the things, the perfectionism, the procrastination, the anxiety, the overwhelm, the worry, all of the things that we label ourselves and say, oh my God, I wish I could stop that. So when I start working with people, it's like, okay, tell me, tell me, you know, your biggest, your biggest issue. Cause I always say, tell me your biggest problem. And I will, you know, get that handled very quickly. Cause it's not what you think it is. Of course. Right. That's how I coach people. Tell me your biggest problem. Don't give me the little one. Give me the big one. Um, and so when you can start seeing all the ways that you put yourself down mm-hmm. as fear responses mm-hmm. to keep you in the fear cycle, calling yourself a procrastinator, you're not a procrastinator. There's just some fear there. You're not, a, you, you know, you're being a perfectionist. Why are you a perfectionist? Because you're afraid. Why do you get overwhelmed? Because there's fear, right? So we would never feel overwhelmed, perfectionism, procrastination, anxiety, you know, again, whatever you name yourself, shame, blame, you would never experience those things or name those things or feel those things uh, unless there was fear underneath. So there has to be a fear that triggers the overwhelm. There has to be a fear that triggers the shame, right? There has to be a fear that triggers the blame, right? So so most of us and most of the courses and workshops out there and coaches work on the fear response level. Quit being a procrastinator, you know, quit being a perfectionist, quit people pleasing. Again, great tool building. That's nice. Great. Awesome. Go take that class. Great tool building. But what it's really not doing is it's actually not handling the root, which is the fear itself. Right. right. So the first thing that I ask clients, the, the simplest way to start moving in, in is just starting to label all the things you think are bad about yourself, all your self-blame, all your, I wish I could quit doing this and put it on a piece of paper and just label them fear responses. Just start shifting what you name them. Just shift the label from I'm bad. I'm a procrastinator. I'm this way rather than, oh, I'm procrastinating because I'm afraid. I don't maybe don't know what it is yet because I don't know my wheel of fear, but at least I can see it's fear now and quit blaming myself because we've got to take that monkey off our back, right? We've got to quit identifying ourselves as the thing that is wrong. No, fear is there. By the way, fear loves you. And fear is just trying to keep you safe. It just doesn't have any other tools besides the tools that it has. You know, every emotion I say has a, a purpose. And fear just wants to keep you safe. And, and we're wired for fear, by the way. Fear is an automatic response unless we become aware of it so that we can shift our response, right? And move into what I call self, uh, you know, proactive behaviors and self-affirming behaviors. So the easiest way, the simplest way, just to start even this concept 
just even start even getting you wrapping your head around it is just take your list of all the things you think are wrong with you, all the things that you wish you didn't do, all the things that you find yourself saying about yourself and just say, I am this. Instead say, my fear response is this. Mm -hmm. Just detaching that, detaching that I am and instead making it, aha, this is a response for fear starts getting the blame and shame off your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing like, oh, maybe it's not, maybe I'm not wrong or bad or evil or not good enough. Okay. It's just fear. Oh, oh, okay. And then of course, you know, what we do in fearless living is we help you identify your wheel of fear so you can see it readily and easily. And then of course the, the antidote, which is the wheel of freedom so that we support you in identifying that essential nature that you left long time ago out of safety and get grab it back and start using it on a daily level. So when you're with that bank teller and you get short, you know exactly what to do the minute you become aware of its fear. Minute you become that you know you're in fear, the minute, minute you go into your wheel of freedom. Fear is, in your book, you you said it's always there. Always there. I felt the way that you described fear almost as a person. You know, yeah, the person yeah, that's sure. standing beside you all the time. It, it's yeah. not just some abstract emotion. In your book, it's it's real. Yes. It's real and it's there. And I felt it as I was reading fear literally. But that's good. Yeah. Yes, but that's good because don't we do the same with God? Yes. Don't we don't we feel like God is a presence? Yes. Right. And, you know, so I think of fear as if you're, if you're a Christian or if you're, you know, so like people call the devil, I call fear, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, shame, fear, you know, monkey mind fear. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So I, I, you know, one of the exercises I give my classes is I tell them to put their hand on their belly, you know, and we can do that now if you'd like, put your hand on your belly and just take a nice deep breath. Just, just breathe. Just breathe. And now tell me where, what's happening to your hand. Going up and down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so your, your belly and your hand are united. Right. And so as you breathe, your hand is going up and down. Right. Mm-hmm. So I want you to imagine for a moment that that hand is fear itself. Right. What I, again, what I call the wheel of fear. Imagine that is fear. And now I want you to imagine and put your hand six inches away from your belly. And now breathe. Breathe. What's your hand doing? It's not holding me back. That's right. It's not holding me back because you've created a space between you and it. There's some freedom there. There's totally freedom. And you have perspective because you have space. So that is why the first thing is just to get your fear responses down and just start labeling them correctly to give yourself some space between you and it, you and fear. So you can start being like objective rather than subjective, rather than blaming yourself. You can go, oh, this is just fear playing out. And these are just the ways I chose to react in fear. Cause some people are procrastinators. Some people are perfectionists. Some people are people pleasers. You know, some people are, you know, overwhelmed. Some people have anxiety, right? People have their own thing Mm -hmm. and they have many of them sometimes, right? So when you use that hand thing, like, let's say you're in a business meeting, let's say you're a church, let's say you're with a crowd of people and you are getting activated and you're like, oh crap, right? I'm getting triggered by my aunt Sue, you know, 
put your hand on your belly, if nothing else, and just breathe, remind yourself that you can either have fear attached to you, or you can take it a few inches away and you can be separated from it. And it doesn't have to decide your next word, your next action, your next feeling. It does not have to decide. Mm -hmm. You can actually decide, but if you don't have that space, you don't know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feels like just like me and wrestling with God. It literally felt like it was in my cells. That's how fear is. It, fe- it feels like it's in your cells and you can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But if you start seeing it as separate from you and start seeing it as just a, again, a wheel of fear, life gets a lot easier. Yeah. Very simple, but powerful tool that can be used at any time. I with anyone, that. anywhere, about anything. I love that. So you've said that even in despair, you can find joy and, yes. and that's really powerful. How do we do this in our darkest time? How did you do it? How did you think to get that calendar You know what I mean? in those stars? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, well, you know, I have to say that probably was God whispering in my ear. Right. Ah. But, um, because at the essence, I asked myself, do you really want to die, Rhonda? Right. You know, do you really want to die? And my answer was like, well, I'm not dying. So I guess I have to live. And if I have to live, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live like I have for the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. I don't want to live like this. Mm-hmm. So I had to find something. And like I said, um, you know, I'd gone to therapy. I'd done a lot of work and again, they were all helpful. Don't get me wrong. I love all that stuff. Um, but it didn't solve the problem, right? So when you talk about joy inside despair, that joy is the knowing that this is not your fault, right. that you are not the victim of the despair, that no one is out to get you. You know, I, I ask my students, is the world for you or against you? Now, everybody knows the right answer, but I say, but how are you? living in the world? How are you behaving? How are you acting? And they go, the world is against me. Yeah, the world is against you. Right. So, you know, so when we start recognizing, oh, the world is against me and we start going, but what if I choose to believe the world is for me, even though I don't have any evidence right now? What if I, what if I truly, truly believe that it's not me, it's fear? What if I truly believe? Then you can hang on to that, like going through that dark night, going through the difficult times, even though, you know, uh, you have a miserable time, even though it's going really rough you know, this is for something so much larger and you know, it is for your soul. You know, this is something that is going to be so good at the end. Cause I tell my students, the difference between me and you is I've done it enough where I know it's going to be good in the end. You haven't allowed yourself to do it. So you don't know it's going to be good in the end. I know it's going to be good in the end. So trust me and, you know, follow me for a minute. And because I know that when you move through this in the way of fear of freedom, you start occupying your body more. You start clearing yourself out from all those, those beliefs that do not serve you. The names you call yourself, the past experiences you forgive. Like you have this whole capacity that you didn't have before this dark night, or again, whatever you want to label it. So that is where the joy comes in. I remember being like when I was in my dark night driving, cause I put everything in storage and drove across the country six times in like two years and stayed with friends and family, which if you knew me, that would be, there's no way I would do that. And, but I knew that I, I had to do it. And uh, it was humbling. It was vulnerable. It was on some level from the fear place, embarrassing, 
but I knew I had to make choices that would save myself rather than keep myself spinning where I was, right? So all of those choices were out of freedom. So even though they were hard, I knew I was, my choices were on some level, even though it was hard, it was empowering me. Mm -hmm. And I knew if I could just hang on to the rope, right? I always tell my students, you know, let me throw you a rope and just, I will tell you where the rope is. I will tell you, you know, like, don't worry, but just hang on to the rope and just keep climbing. Even if it's through mud, even if it's through rain, even if, you know, through it, it all, because when that rope, when you reach, you know, the end of that rope, it, it's going to actually be a powerful, positive thing. And you're going to have yourself back. So it's your framing. It's the whole framing, right? Are, are you framing it in fear of freedom? So this, this brings me to, to this thought, which I was thinking throughout the book as well. How do you help loved ones who maybe aren't willing? Because if you've gotten to this point where, you know, you, you've, you've got an idea of what's going on in terms of how fear is affecting your life and your decisions, but you know, your loved ones don't. Sure. How, but you, them? how do you get them well, there? Well, you can't, right? And we logically know this. We can't do that. Mm -hmm. What we only can do is save ourselves. And in the saving of ourselves, some people will come along and some people won't. And you're not in charge of that. They are. But what's miraculous is they may not come with you now, but they may come with, come with you three years from now or seven years from now when they're willing to do it, right? So we, this is why I want to create a fearless world, right? One person at a time is that as we create more awareness about what fear is, we have a greater capacity to see innocence and have compassion. Mm -hmm. So now we see our uncle afraid. We see our cousin, our husband, our wife, our partner, our child. And you know what happens is we actually start talking to them differently. And as we start talking to them differently, because we see them differently, their shame decreases, their level of victimization decreases because we are no longer heaping it on because we see what's happening and we don't sit there and blame them anymore and call them jerks and tell them how lazy they are. We don't, we, we, there's no such thing as lazy. It's just fear, right? So when we really have that understanding, we become a safe place for people in our lives. And again, some will come and some won't, and we don't get to choose that. And there will be sadness and, you know, grief because you're like, Uncle, Uncle Dave, you know, come with me, right? But the other thing that happens is you no longer have the same expectations of each relationship. So you can actually enjoy what is, mm -hmm. you know, my family, my two sisters are very different than me, very, very different than me and believe very, very different things than I do. And we laugh and we enjoy each other and we, you know, pee our pants and right. So just because we're so different and, you know, do I want them to come to the, you know, the right side? Of course I do. Right. Um, but all I can do is live my life and love them. And when you have judgment against them, it's really hard to love. Right. When you think they should know better or do better or it's really hard to love and it's really hard for them to feel your love yeah. because you're not seeing them as innocent and you're not seeing them as what they really are, which is afraid. Mm -hmm. I've had marriages change. I mean, I remember one guy came up to me at a workshop 
and um, him, he and his wife had, got, had, got, had already gotten divorced and he read Fearless Living, like y'all. And he started, he joined Fearless You, which is my membership and my classes. And um, he started doing the work. And within a few months, he was able to see his wife and his relationship. And the reason they got divorced was all fear-based. Mm. And he called his ex-wife up and said, start crying, would you do this with me? Would you do the work of fearless living with me? Because I think we were just afraid. And she did. And when they both were there at the workshop and they both said like, they're remarried, they're as happy as pie. They're like, it has changed our entire relationship because we no longer blame each other or attack each other or want each other to save each other or treat our, you know, do this, do that. Instead, it's like, oh, and so I've heard that over and over, you know, mar marriages happen. I have a client who's like, the, you, you come to me and they go, well, I'm going to be married in a year. And they were, because again, they, it's just, there's an opening. So it doesn't matter what your thing is, you, what your goal is, what your dream is, what, whatever it is. The only thing between you and it is fear, right? Yeah. So yeah. are you really willing to be what most of us say? Not everybody says this, but many of us say, well, I just want to be a book for love. And I just want to be a bigger person. And I just want to have my values. And I want to, you know, if you want to live your values, you've got to be fearless because values go out the door when fear comes, right? So if you really want to live a life that your soul intended, a value-based, integrous life filled with compassion, fear is the only thing between you and it, besides some skills and tools that you can learn along the way. I've learned so much, Rhonda, from this conversation beyond the book, you know, about fear and about trust. Not everybody's going to be on the same timeline as I'm That's going right. to be necessarily. That's right. That's right. Our listeners are are just going to learn so much from today and it's going to make such a huge imprint in their lives. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your story with us. You are a true you're gift. Welcome. We're very grateful. Excellent. Well, if your listeners want to learn a little bit more, they can go, I'll, I'm going to, I'll gift them stretch risk or die, which is a class about how to take risks. Right. And it talks a little bit about the wheel of fear. So you'll learn a little bit about it, mm -hmm. but it really is an action oriented, um, helping you with those fear responses that I talked about a very simple exercise that I created 27 years ago for a client. Okay. And it's one of everyone's favorites. Just go to fearlessliving.org forward slash risk R I S K and just sign up. And yes, you're going to be on my email list. If you want to get off it, then go ahead and do it. You know, go ahead and get on my list and unsubscribe if you don't want to hear another word from me. It's three 15 minute videos with worksheets, and it's going to support you greatly with this new framing about what fear and fear freedom is. And it's going to support you in actually giving you 10 hours more a week. And it's also going to stop procrastination. Right. And also we'll provide those links in our notes as well. And also they can reach you on Instagram, Instagram, Rhonda Facebook, Britton. tick. Yep. Rhonda Britton, B-R-I-T-T-E-N. E-N. Perfect. Thank you very much, Rhonda. Thank you, Rhonda. Be fearless. Be fearless. People who have surmounted what appears to be insurmountable circumstances are inspiring to all of us. These stories give us hope that we too can overcome, persevere, and succeed. Like those good old rags to riches stories, we all are familiar with these, right, Harris? Yep. 
Yeah, someone of bleak origins and often trauma undergoes a metamorphosis of sorts and embraces a new and extraordinary beginning. Mm-hmm. They're so inspiring, just like the phoenix rising from the ashes. Yes, exactly. These stories are very compelling. Howard Schultz, Starbucks executive chairman, suggests that starting from nothing may actually be the secret ingredient in the recipe for success itself. Hmm. He stated that the more uninspiring your origins, the more likely you are to use your imagination and invent worlds where everything seems possible. Wow, I can totally understand that idea. Yeah, there are so many of these success stories. And, you know, we love to tell and retell them, don't we? Mm -hmm. Especially those where someone really has the odds stacked against them. Absolutely. Like every Disney movie that's out there. (laughs) Who doesn't love cheering for the underdog? I think we love these stories because we can see a little bit of ourselves in them. We can believe that we all have that same potential to experience a fresh start, a new beginning, and achieve unlimited abundance even against all the odds yeah I think you're right about that for sure I love Jim Carrey's story are you familiar with it no I'm not yeah well Jim Carrey renowned comedian actor whose net worth is now said to be around 180 million was once homeless actually as a child after his father lost his job his family was forced to live in a van the story goes and despite those beginnings he persevered his talent was discovered and you know the rest is history I love Jim Carrey. He (laughs) totally cracks me up, all of his facial expressions. But I want to know, the van that he lived in, was it like the one he rode around in in Dumb and Dumber with the dog ears? I do not know. Maybe there was some inspiration there for that. Fact check for me, please, Walker. Okay, I'll look into that. (laughs) And then there's Daniel Craig, actor maybe most famously known for playing James Bond, who's said to be worth $160 You know, these numbers are probably changing all the time. Probably, yeah. Now, he too had a history, which isn't without hardship, and is said to have spent some time on a park bench as well as a struggling actor sleeping on a park bench. Mm -hmm. Both of those stories are really quite remarkable. We put celebrities on a pedestal, but learning of what they've overcome before they've achieved their greatness makes them so much more relatable and human, doesn't it? Absolutely human. Now, two of my favorite women who have tough origin stories and became international successes, I would say are Dolly Parton, of course, and the fabulous Oprah Winfrey. Well, anybody listening to this podcast already knows that I adore Oprah Winfrey (laughs) and think she's the most amazing woman. Uh, And I also love Dolly Parton. They both have had a huge positive impact on humanity. Yes, both Dolly and Oprah, they're very vocal about their impoverished childhoods and nothing hidden here at all. Dolly often talks about growing up in rural Appalachia and being one of 12 children living in a one bedroom cabin. Oh my God, can you imagine? I know. 12 and kids I, in a one bedroom cabin? I, I, I don't know if it was a documentary I saw once with her or if it was... I don't know if she was being interviewed, but she was telling a story about cutting her foot. There was something wrong with her foot and her parents couldn't afford to take her or even get her to a doctor. So they had to sew it up themselves at home. Oh my Yeah, that's one of her childhood memories of So it was like really like, really rough. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, her family's inability to make ends meet is often the subject of her songs. Like the one you probably know, Code of Many Colors. Yeah, I love that song. It's beautiful. Yeah. 
Now, the powerhouse we know as Oprah was also born into an impoverished life in rural Mississippi to teen parents. Her early part of her life, she was raised by her grandmother, and then later on, she was raised by her mom, who was a single mom. And she's very open about the trauma and abuse she experienced as a child and teen. Mm. Yet, despite her difficult start in life, she broke broadcasting barriers, really, for so many women, and particularly women of color, and created a massively successful talk show, production company, really, and so many other accomplishments as well. Absolutely. And she continues to contribute to humanity. Her success can't be measured by her net worth alone, which I know is Mm -hmm. extraordinary. She has been a gift to so many people for so many reasons. And even on a very personal note, I remember when I was in, uh, I think in university, I was watching Oprah because I did religiously and she had some expert on talking about anxiety Mm -hmm. and generalized anxiety disorder. And it was the first time in my life, I was in my 20s, that I realized that that resonated with me, that I had an anxiety disorder. So for me, that was life-changing. I bet. It might sound silly to some people, but I think she really did reach into people's homes and, and make a big difference. She has changed so many lives. And I think just by shedding light on these untalked about issues, it is hard to imagine that a young girl with so many obstacles and so much trauma could persevere and achieve such massive success. Mm-hmm. Perhaps this is what motivated her to be in service to others. Yeah. I do have one more example for you, though. One you may not have heard of before. Oh, okay. Do you know about the personal story of Italian billionaire Leonardo Del Vecchio? No, I don't even think I've heard of him before. Yeah. Well, I knew he was the founder of Luxottica eyeglasses and frames, but what I didn't know was that he was born as one of five children back in the 1930s, and his parents struggled financially. When his father died before he was born, his mother supposedly was unable to raise her children, so Leonardo was raised in an orphanage. Okay. Yeah, it's not an uncommon story, really, this situation during these times. As a young man, he worked as a tool and dye maker's apprentice and worked in metalworking manufacturing parts for eyeglasses before getting into full frames. And supposedly as his business grew, he acquired other brands such as Ray-Ban, Oakley, Sunglasses Hut, you know, Lens Crafters, Pearl Vision even. And, you know, these are just a few to name. He he eventually grew to become the second richest person in Italy and supposedly 54th wealthiest person in the world with a whopping net worth at 24.1 billion US. Holy moly. I know, big. He passed away just actually just in June. That is quite a rise from a life which began parentless in an orphanage. It really is. But not all success stories are based on a rise from poverty alone, are they? No. Sometimes the interesting part of a story is that the individual has acquired extraordinary success later on in life. Yeah, like right when we thought we were all too old for our ship to come in, right? (laughs) Right, Walker? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) For instance, Martha Stewart was 41 when she achieved great success with entertaining. That was her first publishing book. Yeah, I had no idea she was 41 years old when she Mm -hmm. published that book. Wow. And did you know that Ray Kroc, which is the name that's become synonymous with McDonald's was 59 years old when he bought his first McDonald's restaurant no Uh, I think we can safely say it's the world's most successful and recognizable fast food chain absolutely they're even trying to copy it in Russia oh yeah there you go so there's still hope for us then, Walker. Is that what you're <laughs> yes, telling me? Yes, of course. Success found later in life isn't limited to business, though. Charles Darwin, 
you know, he was 50 before he published The Origin of Species, which turned evolutionary science on its head. There's also American folk artist Grandma Moses. She didn't even pick up a paintbrush seriously. I think she painted, but not seriously, until she was 78 years old. Wow. Yeah, so... You know what this tells me, there's lots of time for you to still pick up that brush, Harris, even if you don't consider yourself too crafty. Yeah, I think I'm going to leave that to the artistically inclined. However, I did get a Chinese brush. It's like a scripting yeah, kit or something. I've seen those. Yeah, and I, so I think it might, I'm going to give it a go. And I'll let you know. I'll let you know. But it's never too late, really, no. for a fresh start or to take up a new hobby or to hit your stride. Is it, Walker? No, you've got that right, Harris. Perhaps the greatest of all fresh starts are given to those individuals who have had a near-death experience. Those who've had that brush with death or even those that have been determined to be clinically dead and have come back to life. I have to say these stories absolutely fascinate me. I know. Me I can't too. get enough of them. I know. I don't know how they could not fascinate you. These people have actually crossed the river Styx and visited the great unknown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there can be no fresher start, really, if you think about it, than being given a chance to live again. Yeah. I think many of those who've had these kinds of experiences would agree. Often they claim to have a new perspective on life, they have new and different priorities. And they look at their own lives through a completely different lens. Yeah, rightly so. Like, how could you be the same person after undergoing such an experience? Yeah. It would be life-changing. Yeah. Now, I hear that most also no longer have a fear of death. That, I imagine, would be very liberating. Yeah, absolutely. And considering that so many people are afraid because mm-hmm. it's just an unknown... People who have had a serious brush with death almost always describe the experience as a positive one. Often there's a welcoming light reported with an overwhelming sense of love. And these individuals report being greeted by loved ones and describe the experience as calm and secure and definitely not one to be feared. They don't even necessarily want to come back to life, but instead come back feeling as if, well, it just wasn't their time yet to go. Mm-hmm. So do you have any idea what the percentage of people who claim to have had these near-death experiences is? Well, according to psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Grayson, who studies this topic and has written the book After, a doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond, states that 10 to 20% of people who come close to death report these experiences So roughly 5% of the population. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not too many then, but it's interesting that most have a common experience though. Yeah, absolutely. Like even my own grandmother, Mm -hmm. she was really ill with pneumonia one time and she reported that she saw a tunnel and light and she wasn't ready to go at that point and so did not cross over. So it is fairly common. But there are still some people who have near-death experiences who don't have those elements, don't have that warm and fuzzy experience that we so often hear about. Yeah, I've never actually heard of these negative NDEs before. Yeah, I hadn't either. According to the Missouri State Medical Association, there are other near-death experiences that aren't so light and lovely. Hmm. It's thought that we don't hear about them very often because the people who are involved don't necessarily want to talk about them. They're 
greatly distressing. Well, that that makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. This publication presented three types of negative near-death experiences, which they describe as inverse, void, and even hellish. Well, those don't sound like much fun. No, particularly the latter. The first type, though, seems to be similar to what we've learned to be a typical positive near-death ex- experience, except the individual who is dying is just having none of it, does mm. not really want to go. One example that's presented is a man who was thrown from his horse, found himself floating at treetop height, watching emergency medical technicians working on his body, and he started screaming, no, 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 this isn't right, put me back, but they didn't hear him. And the next thing he knew, he was shooting through darkness toward a bright light, flashing past shadowy people who he understood to be deceased family members waiting for him. And he was panic stricken. He did not want to go. But the second near-death experience type is a little bit more eerie. It's described as an ontological encounter with a perceived vast emptiness, often a devastating scenario of aloneness, isolation, and sometimes annihilation scary eh it actually sounds a little bit like a science fiction movie like you're just sort of floating around in space getting sucked into the black hole one woman who reported this experience said she felt herself being sucked into a void like she was being drawn into a dark abyss or a tunnel she said i was not aware of my body as i know it i was terrified i felt terror i had expected nothingness I expected the big sleep. I expected oblivion. And I found now that I was going to another plane and it frightened me. I wanted nothingness, but this force was pulling me somewhere I didn't want to go. But I never got beyond the fog. So that makes me kind of think like maybe it just didn't jive with what she thought dying would be. Mm -hmm. And maybe she was going through this other experience that we're more commonly familiar with but just was really resistant yeah it sounds like she expected nothing yeah there was something there whether it was good or bad there was something and then that was an issue yeah that's what terrified her yeah Mm -hmm. but the third negative near-death experience the hellish experience sounds well hellish (laughs) so what's that all about oh my gosh okay (laughs) check this out One example was this woman who reported horrific beings with gray gelatinous appendages grasping the sounds of their guttural moaning and the indescribable stench stayed with her for decades. Wow. Well, you know, it's not surprising. No wonder people aren't in a rush to retell their stories if they've got stories like this and essentially relive the experience, right? I know. On the upside, though, apparently the hellish experience is the very least common. Oh, thank goodness. So even the the negative NDE experiences result in a fresh start for these people? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes these experiences encourage the individual to make positive changes in their life. Others, though, they have to work through the after effects and the trauma of their experience. Did you know that there are even shared death experiences? I've never heard of that. What What is a shared death experience? I had never heard of it either. But apparently knowledge of the shared death experience has been around since the late 19th century. These are cases where the death experience of a person dying is also experienced by someone physically nearby, like sitting ne- near their deathbed, or even someone who may not be nearby but is emotionally connected to the person dying. 
And this term, shared death experience, was invented by Raymond Moody, and the topic was the subject of his book, Glimpses of Eternity, in 2009. So skeptics suggest that people who say they shared the dying experience with the deceased could be the result of the trauma experienced by witnessing the death, or that perhaps it just made a really good story, which I think is a little cynical. People that report these kinds of experiences, though, are typically in occupations like hospice workers or soldiers on the battlefield. Well, that makes sense. They would experience a great deal of death, possibly, I imagine. Absolutely. Their exposure to death would be far greater than, you know, your average person. Mm -hmm. I read the story of one hospice volunteer who was reading to a semi-conscious patient. Suddenly, the hospice volunteer felt a force jerk his own spirit out of his body. He was floating above the patient looking down at him when he realized that the spirit of the patient was also floating right beside him. He said that the patient's spirit was smiling at him and giving him a look as if to say, hey, check this out, man, here we are. He then felt his spirit drop back into his body again and the patient passed away. But it all happened very, very quickly. Well, it's a lot to think about. I do find it interesting when medical doctors and others with medical or scientific backgrounds share their own personal NDEs. You would think by nature of their profession, these individuals would be more likely to explain an NDE with a scientific context rather than a spiritual or supernatural one, right? Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Have you ever heard of Dr. Eben Alexander or Dr. Mary Neal? I have. I find both stories fascinating. I've read Dr. Mary Neal's book Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, Yeah, they are very fascinating. Dr. Eben Alexander is an American neurosurgeon and author who has actually written and spoken extensively on his own 2008 near-death experience while he was in a coma due to meningitis. He had been in a coma for a week before regaining consciousness. When he awoke, he had lost all memory of his life prior but he did remember his near-death experience. He reports that he initially felt like he was in dirty jello, which is kind of gross, for a long time, and then was rescued by a slowly spinning white light with thread-like tendrils and an unearthly melody. So we've got that common theme of light again. Eh, Walker? Yeah, often white light. And even the jello. Yes, this is the first time I've heard about the repeat of the Jello experience, but I I bet you it comes up more often than we know. Yeah, from that woman's hellish experience. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, the light opened up into what he calls a gateway valley, a beautiful realm, perfect with bright colors, lush with trees, waterfalls, and he himself was on a butterfly wing with millions of other butterflies flying over this valley where thousands of beings were dancing. There were swooping orbs of divine energy, which he calls angelic fires. And he took these fires or lights to be souls between lives. There were chants and hymns thundering down from above. He said he felt the breath of God of an infinite love, which is also a common theme, and not a judging God. He felt comfort and he was very at peace like he was at home. When he was on the wing of the butterfly, he saw a woman beside him that never spoke a word and gave him a look again of this unending love. He said he felt that he knew her very, very well, and he later discovered that the woman he met was his guardian angel, apparently the deceased daughter of his birth parents, whom he had only met the year before. 
Dr. Alexander's experience changed him from a doctor who believed that life after death was a brain-based illusion to thinking very, very differently. He says life after death is real. And in his words, if science doesn't recognize this fact, then it is doing two things wrong. First, science often uses the wrong tools to make measurements. And second, even the most open-minded scientists are a long way from understanding what the right tools will be. We simply haven't discovered the scientific answers to spiritual questions yet. Wow, I find it so reassuring to hear these stories. So what about Dr. Mary Neal? Yeah, her story is incredible. She recounted her near-death experience in her book, To Heaven and Back, also in a TED Talk, and the Netflix series, Surviving Death, which I highly recommend. It was very interesting. Dr. Neal is an orthopedic spine surgeon who drowned while kayaking in Chile. She states that she died, went to heaven, spoke with Jesus, but was returned to earth because she still had work that she needed to do. She was actually pinned under eight to 10 feet of water in her kayak for 30 minutes. The force of the water bent her body in half, her legs backwards at the knee, resulting in multiple fractures. She recounts seeing her purple and bloated body being pulled from the river from afar. And she says she could see the CPR being performed on her body. And she says she knew at that time she was dead. Apparently, it was quite an ordeal to get her from the river through the thick terrain to a nearby village where her husband, who is also an orthopedic surgeon, cared for her until they could get her back to the United States. And there they pronounced that she was not expected to live. Even to the next day, she had advanced pneumonia, in addition to swelling in her lung tissue, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, She was in pretty bad shape. During this time, Dr. Neal said that, when I no longer felt myself trying to breathe, I just assumed I would die. She said she felt herself rise up out of the river, and when my soul broke through the surface of the water, I encountered a group of 15 to 20 souls, human spirits, she believes, sent by God, who greeted me with the most overwhelming joy I have ever experienced and could ever imagine. She says she remembers becoming irritated with the fellow kayakers who were calling her and trying to resuscitate her, and that she became annoyed that they wouldn't let her go. Despite having a very happy life on earth, she remembers not wanting to come back into her body, but she realized it wasn't her time and she had work to be done and she must return. She was even told at that time, a bit of a prophecy, that her son would eventually die. And in fact, 10 years later, he was hit and killed in a car accident. That's tragic. Yeah. And a heavy weight on your shoulder. And a heavy knowing, right? She says that she tried to come up with a medical or scientific explanation for what she'd experienced after the fact. She says she learned everything she could about drowning, about the dying brain, but nothing seemed to account for her survival or could explain her spiritual experience. And Dr. Neal says almost 20 million people in the United States alone have had this experience. Wow, that's pretty much in line with the report you quoted. These are incredible life-altering experiences. So what sort of life changes occur after a positive or negative NDE? Well, as you can imagine, there are many different reactions among those who experience near death, Mm -hmm. though a common thread is a sense of peace and even purpose. 
some people decide to make positive life changes or change their life direction completely after their NDE. Some people understandably become more religious or spiritual than they have before. For example, Dr. Mary Neal, she became a Christian after her near-death experience. She states, though, that we can all have a fresh start even without a near-death experience. In her words, if you undertake a process of spiritual exploration and discovery, your daily life will change for the better in ways you have no ability to even imagine. It's hard to top the fresh start provided by a near-death experience, but fresh starts certainly do take many forms, don't they? Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer that we all have different chapters in our lives, and each of these chapters begins with a fresh start, of course, with the wisdom you bring from the previous chapters. Right. I think you and I are perfect examples of this with previous careers. Absolutely. I think just the variety of our lived experiences and the vocations that we've both held have led us to this point in our careers and it also gives us our unique perspective on life. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you've switched careers, started a business, succeeded or failed. Each experience broadens your skill set and your own unique set of beliefs and life strategies. There are many well-known examples of people who shifted gears at some point in their lives to follow their dreams. For instance, Jeff Bezos, whether you love him or hate him, was an investment banker before launching Amazon.com from his garage. Right. Or what about Vera Wang? She was actually a professional figure skater and a magazine editor before becoming a world-renowned fashion designer. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And Ina Garten, who I know we both love and admire, worked in nuclear energy policy and management for the White House in her 20s before starting her specialty food store and eventually becoming a TV celebrity cookbook author. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. I don't know if you know about Walt Disney, but he volunteered for the Red Cross in France during World War I, driving an ambulance. But when he returned, he worked for his father's company as a night watchman, and then eventually started to branch out into the direction of drawing by creating newspaper and magazine ads as a temporary Christmas job. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. But regular everyday people are making dramatic fresh starts all the time, every day. Absolutely. And many people are looking to take a new direction, particularly at this time of year. Mm -hmm. I personally have known friends who have switched careers. One friend, an engineer who I knew always wanted to be a doctor later in life, retrained to follow his dreams. Yeah, I know quite a few people who have made similar leaps to follow their hearts, often in the name of service or the greater good. Take, for example, Mark Hall Jacquin, someone we both know and respect. He left his career as a senior analyst at a gas company to found a remarkable organization, which is called Shelter Movers. Mark saw an urgent need to help people safely flee abusive situations. He now operates a national charitable organization that provides secure transportation to a new and fresh life without fear. He has truly changed so many lives, given so many people their own fresh start. Yeah, it's hard to describe how incredible Mark and his team are. We have been big fans of theirs for a really long time yeah. now. You know, this is probably a topic in itself, but I read an interesting chapter in Rhonda Britton's book, Fearless Living, which discusses living our authentic selves. In some cases, people encounter negative reactions when they tell their friends and family they have plans to change careers. 
Yeah, I think she calls them dream drainers. But I can see it happening. People are afraid of change. So they can be suspicious of the motivations behind someone's life change. And they might even be just worried about the the outcome. Yeah, not everyone will be supportive. I agree. Any negativity, like she says, likely reflects their own fears and concerns. Mm -hmm. I, for one, get inspired when others people when you know when other people around me make changes major ones in their lives yeah me too big life changes don't always have to be career changes though do they no no they don't it might involve new relationships you know getting out of your old area of comfort and trying to meet new people perhaps even ending a relationship you realize is no longer healthy or happy and breaking free to start again on your own yeah And what about beyond relationships? Yeah, it can be as simple as stepping out of your comfort zone and taking on a volunteer position or immersing yourself in a new interest. Maybe you always wanted to take piano lessons, but your parents could never afford it. Or maybe you never had the opportunity to get your driver's license, but always wanted that little bit of extra freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, always wanted to weight train or rock climb. It's never too late, really. Is there anything you've wanted to do but haven't? Oh my God, where do I start? (laughs) Some of the things I've always wanted to do are actually current works in progress. I've always wanted to be fluent in another language. I study French with Duolingo almost every day. And I hope that that dream will become a reality. I'm working hard at it, Walker. But maybe a move to France might just speed it along. What do you think? There you go. Yeah. After your hot tub. After the hot tub. (laughs) That's definitely on the to-do list. Actually, I really would like the experience, too, of living abroad. I think that would be an amazing life change, but probably a little bit scary. Yeah. There's so many things I would like to do and learn to do that... You know, I just sort of felt that I didn't have time to do it with working and raising the kids. I'd like to take some screenwriting classes. I know that for sure. Start learning a language or two as well. I sort of do it on and off, but I'm not really dedicated, dedicated to it yet. Yeah. Take a dance class so I can get more, you know, activity Mm -hmm. into my life while Mm -hmm. enjoying it. Get back to pottery and then maybe even do some weight training. Yeah. Weight training is on my list too. It's so good for everybody. But especially as we age, we really need that resistance or something, right? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. That what we yeah. Need? No, I hear it's good for your joints. Yeah. Okay. Well, you and I both, we're going to get back at that this year. So did you know about 92-year-old Gladys Burrell, who began marathon running at the age of 86? No, I don't think so. She, yeah. She set the world record for the oldest woman to finish a marathon. She attributed much of her success to her positive attitude and outlook on life. And, you know, it just goes to show it's never too late, Harris. I know. Starting marathon <laughs> training at age 86. Like, I'm putting away my running shoes. But I'm fully behind learning as many new skills as possible. It just keeps us young and engaged in life. For sure. I read a fabulous article on Scientific American entitled Thinking You're Too Old to Learn New Tricks. Research shows that acquiring additional skills can be a terrific way to keep an aging brain in shape. And this article discussed the results of a research study that demonstrated that learning multiple new skills in an encouraging environment in an older adulthood leads to cognitive growth, just like it does in childhood. Is that amazing? I love that idea. Yeah, it's totally amazing. So it sounds like we need to keep up our attitude of lifelong learning. You got that right. Don't fear the fresh start. Instead, embrace it wholeheartedly. Just like a blanket of untouched, freshly fallen snow, our intensely human drive for a clean slate is familiar to us all. 
No matter what drives this craving for a new beginning, it's usually based in fear. Fear of failure, fear of lack, fear of being unloved, even fear of dying. When we take that leap and learn to live fearlessly, we can take hold of that tabula rasa and reinvent our relationships with ourselves and others. And it is there that we can find freedom. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Follow us each week as we continue the conversation.